Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our ongoing discussion of the topic of instruction that works. Joining me at this time is Dr. Henry L. Rodiger III, nicknamed Roddy. Professor Roddy is, is the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Professor at Washington University in St. Louis. He graduated with a B.A. in psychology from Washington and Lee University in 1969, the year I was born, and received his Ph.D. from Yale University in 1973. He has served on the faculty of Purdue University, the University of Toronto, and Rice University. He studies learning and memory, including ways to improve these processes and ways they go awry, such as the development of false memories. Very interesting. Professor Roddy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, I greatly appreciate you coming on. You came to my attention as I was reading Educational Leadership due to an article you wrote called uh, The Science of Successful Learning. And I just found this very intriguing because many of many of the things that educators do, we do because we just assume it works and we don't really look at the science behind it. So um, the recent science shows that most people go about learning in the wrong ways. How so? Well, there are several ways. Um, one general problem we have, uh, you might ask, why would people do that? Because after all, we're all lifelong learners. And one of the kind of strange but interesting things about learning and memory is that often strategies that work very well in the short term, something that uh, would get you through, you know something uh, well for a brief period of time, often those same strategies don't help you in the long term. So to take one simple example, uh, students learn quickly that if they cram for a test, if they just reread something repeatedly, well, that is a good way of learning if you only want to learn know something for, say, a few hours or a day. Uh, but if you want to learn it uh, and have it retain it for many months and years, you should do other things besides simply rereading back-to-back. And uh, just to give you one example of how that would work, um, rather than students just reading, well, that's the way they normally say they study, it would be better for them to stop after, say, every paragraph or every section of their textbook and simply close it and try to retrieve what they've just read. Or if they look, usually many textbooks have a bank of questions at the end of the chapter. Uh, if they would also then, uh, besides retrieving while they're reading, they uh, if they would then also look at the questions at the end of the chapter and try to answer them, or look at the key terms at the back of the chapter, there will often be key technical terms they ask themselves, can I use this in a sentence? Do I know what it means? Could I write an essay or a short answer question about this item? And if the answer is no, they need to go back and reread the textbook. So um, that's one way. Uh, so often students don't do those things. They're hard. They're effortful. Uh, but they would serve long-term learning much better than simply rereading the text which, or rereading their notes from class, which is what most students say they do when they study. Hmm. Now, I guess this would, I guess this would be why many of us, I know when I finished schooling, if you asked me to go back and in New York State, we take regents exams at the end of uh, the year and in, in most major subjects in high school. But if you asked me yeah. to go back and take that regents again, simply several months after I, let's say, aced the regents, I'd probably fail that same regents. Would that uh, relate to what you're saying about how we traditionally learn? 
Yeah, I hope you wouldn't fail, and I bet you wouldn't. But <laughs> but yes, that's exactly it. We if uh, I mean the goal of education is to provide long term learning for life for many of our subjects, and uh, so we need to develop strategies that will do that, uh, and even to get people through. Say, if you study something in October, November of the academic year, if you go have a uh, regents exam on it the next spring or the next summer, uh, you'll need to remember it for at least that long and preferably longer. And so uh, simply doing things like rereading uh, checks will not get you there. Uh, one, one way to think of this is uh, we often think of the problem of education as uh, students acquiring knowledge, of getting knowledge into their brains, and that's part of it, absolutely. We want students to know uh, information. But the other part, the part we don't often worry about, is the use of information, of retrieving it, that basically what we want students to do is to be able to put their mental fingertips on the information when they want it. And I've written a book with two other uh, people uh, called Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. And we try to go through there the kind of illusions that we all have about learning and then strategies that will work better for us. And one of those is to practice retrieving what we know. So if you think of how you learn the multiplication tables in elementary school, you know, you had six times 48 on one side, I'm sorry, six times eight on one side, and you look at that and you try to think 48, and if you couldn't, you'd turn the card over and there it would be on the other side. And now for most of us, if we learn that way, uh, we'll know the multiplication tables for our whole lives. Uh, and so we can do that with any kind of knowledge. So if we practice retrieving the knowledge, we will have it at our middle fingertips when we need it. So people do that when they learn foreign language vocabulary and other things, but the technique works for many different types of material, not just uh, simple ones like uh, arithmetic facts or foreign language vocabulary. Okay, and and in your book, who are the other co-authors? Uh, Peter Brown is a professional writer who lives in St. Paul, Minnesota, uh, and Mark McDaniel is my colleague here at Washington University. Uh, so the order is... Uh, um, Peter is first author, Peter Brown, uh, then I'm second author, Mark's third author. But we all three worked on the books that are weaving um, the material, so we all went through the book multiple times. Uh, mm -hmm. It really was a joint effort. Excellent. And if I'm correct, the book came out in 2013 and published by Harvard University Press? Yeah, no, it actually came out in 2014. It came out okay. uh, in April of this year. Okay, great. So it's recent. And and what's the target audience? Is it for professors, for educators, for, for students? Well, uh, we hope it would be for many different... We, we tried to uh, put examples in for many different walks of life. So uh, a lot of the examples are from education, but uh, Peter had a career in business, so he contacted many of his business friends and others. We have stories about neurosurgeons. We have stories about business people. We have a story about a gardener and... The basic theme of the book is successful learning, and so we talk about how each of these people were able to accomplish it. And then we do have some uh, stories about professors also in the book. Uh, but the, the general idea is that successful learning is uh, – the, the techniques for successful learning span many different fields. We also have, for example, the interview with a uh, former uh, – University of Georgia football coach Vince Dooley in the book, and he talks how he would prepare his team for games on Saturday, how they would practice all week. And it really fit very well with some of the themes of the book of practicing 
like you'll play. So kind of practicing retrieving the plays that you will need on Saturday and retrieving, uh, practicing on the field how you'll defend against whatever team you're playing that weekend. So it's really uh, works across sports, across medicine, across academia, and uh, other fields too. So we tried to make it a very broad book uh, to appeal to a wide variety of readers. Uh, I think it's excellent that you included the sports aspect because there's still that myth out there about the dumb jock, and that's it's actually just the opposite. They're, they're usually your most um, high functioning uh, academically, and in fact, there was a uh, about a week ago I was looking at a huddle, and they let they let the audience listen into a huddle of Andrew Luck, the quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts, and it it appeared as though he was speaking in a foreign language because of all of the codes he was using. <laughs> Yet the entire huddle would be able to understand exactly what he was referring to. No, it's exactly right. To be a professional football player, you need to have a huge amount of information, a wealth of information. I'd love to study how they do that, but that was what Coach Dooley was talking about at the University of Georgia, preparing his team. Uh, so it's absolutely right. Let me give you one more example from sports, if I could. Uh, and again, this is going to simplify a general principle. Uh, but one way we teach in education, let me switch to schools and then I'll switch back. But we typically teach in a way that we call uh, blocked practice. So in other words, say you're learning a particular type of math problem. Well, you might practice that kind of math problem a number of times. Then the next chapter, we have a different type of math problem, so you practice that one a number of times, and so forth. But then when you get to the test, uh, so basically you learn to solve the math problem because you know what type it is. But when you get to the test and the problems are all mixed up, they're all out of order, uh, higgledy-piggledy, and so you've got to figure out what type of problem is this before you can solve it. And so what we advocate in the book is after a little bit of block practice to get you up to speed, you really should have mixed practice where the problems are all interleaved one among each other. So you have practice discriminating what type of problem is this. Uh, and so we recommend that, uh, and there are good studies on that um, by several uh, uh, researchers. Uh, how does this apply to sports? Well, in sports, often people do the same thing, that in batting practice for baseball players, often they get 15 fastballs and then 15 curveballs and then 15 change-ups, and they learn to hit those. But, of course, in the game, that doesn't work. Uh, the pitcher doesn't tell you, hey, fastball's coming. You've got to be able to pick it up on your own. And so in a research project done at uh, a baseball team of a college in California, they actually tried that. They tried uh, giving players either math practice, the kind they usually get, here's 15 of one, 15 of the other, or they gave them the same 45 pitches, but now they were all mixed up. And what you find when you do this is that initial learning is worse with mixed practice. That is, if you get 15 fastballs and you know they're all fastballs, you can hit them better than if those same 15 fastballs are all mixed up. And so that's why people like blocked practice. It looks like you're learning very quickly because your performance gets good, and that's what coaches and that's what players want to see. Uh, but uh, in the games, the players, when they were given the final test, namely playing in the game, the players who had mixed practice, who uh, 
didn't, who didn't do as well at first, they did better in the games because what they were able to do better was to discriminate what kind of pitch is this coming at me, uh, which is something you don't do if you know the next 15 balls are all going to be fastballs. So it's the same principle in education as in the classroom. If you mix up problems in the classroom, you have better long-term retention of them and you do better on the test. If you mix up pitches in baseball practice, you get, uh, again, slower learning initially, but better performance in the long term. Excellent. Now, teachers and parents' efforts to make learning easy are an honorable but misguided impulse. How so? Well, uh, so take the example I just gave you. We all say, well, what's the best way to learn? Well, usually we think of, say, in military training, another place we looked, uh, the best thing to, best way to learn is something that brings you up to speed fast. You want uh, training time uh, is precious, learning time is precious, um, practice time for athletes is precious. So you say, well, what will get them, get us up here fastest? And that's block practice. So if you do the same thing over and over, you'll get better at it. The trouble is, in real life, you don't ever, you're rarely asked to do the same thing over and over. Uh, you have to mix things up. And so uh, the, what we all want to do as teachers and parents, our, our impulse is, oh, I want to train my child or I want to teach my child how to do something well. I want them to learn how to multiply or learn how to, uh, to add. And sure enough, so you need some block practice, but then it's good to intermix the practice because that's the way real life is. Things are always coming at you in different orders, and you need to know how to solve them and to recognize what kind of problem it is and to solve it. So the the fundamental problem and and why we, uh, even college students, don't realize that, I mean, they've been learners their whole lives. That's how they got to college. But they've often done use strategies that work well in the short term but that and not realizing they hurt long-term learning because what we usually do is to assess learning in the very short term how well do i do on this test how well am i hitting in batting practice and so forth um, without them thinking well will i be able to do this down the road and that's what we're emphasizing is that we need to pay attention to long-term learning and often what works for short-term learning doesn't generalize and improve long-term learning. And we give multiple examples of this in our book. Excellent. This is great information because I, I touch on so many topics on this show, but the bottom line when it comes to education, it's all about learning and, and how to learn. And I think right now this is probably the most important uh, subject that I've addressed on this show. Uh, Professor Roddy, at this time we need to take a short break, but we'll be right back with more right after this. Okay. And now, more Educate on TalkZone.com. Here's Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our interview with our distinguished guest, Professor Henry L. Rodiger III. Uh, Professor Rodiger, or Professor Roddy, I should say, uh, you you touched upon some very important uh science about how we learn and uh you gave me some speaking points which really get into the meat and potatoes of uh of your book and of of your research so i'm going to just give you some you know some cues and if you can go a little deeper i'd greatly appreciate that um 
You learn and remember better when you struggle to get new knowledge out of the brain instead of trying to get to trying to get it in. Please explain that. Yes. Um, well, uh, that's what I was talking about a few moments ago in terms of retrieval practice, that we usually think of education being how can we get uh, students to learn and to store information, and that's, those processes are absolutely critically important, but we also need to get students to practice using what they know. That's what they'll actually have to do. And so this is all part of a movement that's well-known in education as active learning, trying to get the students not to be passive acquirers of information, but to train them to use the information, to solve problems, to write essays, to think critically, to uh, provide other examples. If the textbook gives you one example of something, um, I'm tempted to pick a psychology example just because that's what I teach, then I will ask the students to generate several other answers. Uh, or several other examples from their personal experience. The more we can get students to tie information to their personal uh, lives, things they already know, the better off we are, and that will help them to retrieve it in the future when they need it. To It'll serve as a good cue to help remind them of what they need to know. So that's what we mean about uh, uh, learning being uh, partly getting things out of information. Test yourself. Uh, be a self-tester. Uh, if you have to know a body of information, you can't be sure you know it unless you test yourself on it and then correct any errors you're making uh, as you test yourself. So that's an absolutely critical step, but one that students often forget or don't want to take because it is hard. It's a struggle, as, as you said in the question. Uh, we have this myth that learning should be easy, we should always make it easy on students, uh, but sometimes when they have to struggle with the material, uh, as long as the struggle is one they can overcome, they can actually do it, then that will help them in the long term. You know, to, to uh, reinforce your point, I've, like many uh, Americans, I took Spanish in, in junior high and high school, and yet after Sir, I graduated. I couldn't speak. I couldn't communicate in Spanish. Um, in the past two and a half years, I've been studying a what was called the Pimsleur method, which I believe speaks to exactly what you just stated. Um, in the Pimsleur method, you are required to repeat after native speakers um, on a regular basis. You can't. There's no way you can, you know, try to learn it by just studying a book or doing writing. You actually have to struggle through pronouncing the words and speaking to actually become a fluent speaker. And that's different from my other uh, instruction, the instruction I had in in middle school and high school. And now I'm actually picking picking up the language. And I think the same science is applied to the Pimsleur method. That's that's the science that you're uh, uh, sharing here. Yes, I'm I'm not familiar with the Pimsleur method, and I I don't really study second language acquisition, but the principle sounds exactly right. You need to uh, practice uh, your pronunciation repeated afterwards, and the the trick would be, I would say, uh, that's the kind of retrieval practice to also then keep doing it for, uh, you know, practice at longer intervals, not just right after you hear something, because then you've got that kind of ringing in your ears, as it were, Uh, but then to look at the words or read sentences much later, too, and then go back to the, uh, the native speaker if you think you've just messed up. We're usually pretty good, Not we're not perfect, but we're usually pretty good at telling, uh, once we test ourselves, at telling whether we know something. 
our uh, judgment is reasonably good. And so then you can kind of test yourself and assess yourself and then go back to the original wording if you need help with it. But it sounds like a very good method. And, and again, it promotes active learning. Yes, indeed. And in fact, with the PIMSA method, it, they, they, they require you to repeat, but the time periods for repeating become length, you know, lengthier and lengthier as you acquire more words and knowledge, and then they get back to it at, at further and further intervals because at that point, um, it's becoming, uh, it's, I guess it's, it's ingrained in your, in your memory at that point. Right. That sounds, that sounds like a great technique then. Mm-hmm. So, um, Highly effective strategies for teaching and learning cost nothing to adopt, but require that teachers and students understand how learning works. What, if any, pushback have you experienced when sharing with teachers effective strategies new to them? Okay. Uh, some of the strategies we suggest are counterintuitive. And the one about retrieval practice, we say, well, uh, having your students test themselves and having you test them in class is good for them. Well, also we get pushed back there because uh, all the issues surrounded testing in the schools. That uh, so standard, teachers, when you say test, it really is a four-letter word to many teachers, uh, and they are thinking a standardized test. The kind of testing we recommend, though, is for educational purposes to help you learn, not to get graded upon. So let me give you an example of some of the things that uh, we've studied and that I actually do in my own classes. Um, so I teach college, and every class I teach now, I've, uh, I didn't used to do this. I, well, let me go back. So the way many people will remember, uh, many of your listeners will remember from college is you take a course like, say, Introductory Psychology, and you might have a midterm and a final exam, and you might get two grades in the course. Well, what does that mean? Well, first it means that students mostly study before the midterm and the final. Uh, and second, then they're not being quizzed all much. Um, they, they don't have a chance to see what they know and what they don't know. So what I do is encourage students to test themselves. And every class I teach, I either ask students to write an essay, do the reading and write an essay on a topic I assign, uh, just two or three pages just to make them think about it. Or in some of the bigger classes, I would uh, have them take just a little quiz that would not count many points at the end of class. So the idea would be I've assigned reading for the class, I've um, then uh, lectured, and just the last few minutes uh, I asked them to take a quiz. Usually it's a very easy quiz because I'm testing them on the most salient points in the lecture and the readings that I wanted to get across. Uh, if they miss it, I know I've done a bad job, so it gives me feedback. If they get it right, it's helped them with retrieval practice. And the other thing this uh, frequent quizzing does is to have students do the reading and keep up with the course, which they often don't do if you just have a midterm and a final. And it also then requires them to come to class and to pay attention. <laughs> and those are all good things, in my opinion. So those are kind of the indirect benefits from frequent quizzing. Um, but we do occasionally get pushback from teachers saying, oh, we're, they already have too much testing. Uh, and they mean by that standardized testing. I say, no, what I mean is just have low-stakes quizzes, as we call them. In other words, they don't count for much of your grade. They do count the way I do it. And some of the research we've done in middle schools near St. Louis uh, and one high school also, 
uh, we had zero stakes quizzes. The students were just quizzed, and they treated it kind of like a game. There were multiple choice quizzes. They had the student response systems or clickers, so they had a clicker where they would just click in the right answer if it was a multiple choice question, and then the teacher could see what they clicked in, uh, but the kids themselves were anonymous. The other kids couldn't see who got it right and who got it wrong, and that's a pretty good system because then you can tell, did the points get across to the class? And the class gets immediate feedback, so anything they miss, they are corrected immediately, uh, and they get you know, if they were guessing and they happened to get it right, they also find out immediately if they were right or wrong and what the correct answer is. So this is an example of how you can use quizzes in classes that will uh, be for educational purposes, not for um, grading purposes so much. Although I do, in my own classes, I do a small part of the grade is due from the daily quizzes, but I still give the regular exams and papers, too. I think that's fantastic. In fact, you just brought back a memory, my God, from over 30 years ago when I had a, a ninth grade history teacher who would have Jeopardy every Friday. And Jeopardy was based on what you learned during the week. So we would actually play a game of Jeopardy and we looked at it as fun and as a game. And of course, Jeopardy is a popular you know, television yeah. uh, game show. So we didn't look at it as a work or, or as, a, as a test, a dirty word test. It was just fun for us. And it, and it challenged us to, in order to do well on the game of Jeopardy, to know the material. So I, I think that's an uh, well, that's excellent a idea. Example. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we ought to do that in all our classes. Exactly. Um, now, when when students compare your your class and your methods to classes that may be less rigorous, what what are their response? Well, the students uh, at first they're kind of shocked because after all, this is university level and they're used to not having that many quizzes uh, or tests. Uh, but uh, and a few students might drop at the beginning, um, but. Uh, most of them stick with it, and they often tell us, I'm not the only one who does this. There are other people, especially at my university, but it's catching on now, I hope, around the country, and a lot of people write me about it. Uh, the students often say by the end they really like it, that they uh, are now quizzing themselves in other classes, too, or they're not required to, because it's just a good way to learn. And they also say... Um, that they kept up with the course. It's one of the few courses or the only courses they kept up with. And as you remember from college, uh, we all start off with the uh, trying to say, okay, this semester will be different. I'm going to really keep up with my classes. And then, you know, by the fourth week of the semester, you're behind in something. Because what students do, they typically concentrate on whatever they have a big test in or an assignment in next. That's what captures their attention. And so this way, they can't let your class slide because they get a quiz every time. And so it, I think it's helpful for them. And by the end of the class, they mostly say on the student ratings, yes, this was a very effective way to teach, and I wish others did it because it helped me learn. So I have one more question for you. Um, All right. Dr. Rodica, you, you shared a lot of great information and great examples, um, but let's get back to um, – the real specifics, and let's just repeat that one more time. The gains from single-minded repetitive practice of new knowledge or skills are illusory and melt away quickly. Is this what you refer to as ephemeral learning? Uh, that would be kind of mass practice. The illusion that if you do something, or or uh, you know, it's like 
hitting the fastball 15 times in a row. You feel like you've really mastered the fastball, but can you do it when you don't know a fastball is coming? Uh, It's like uh, doing a math problem. You learn to do a certain problem in geometry several times in a row. Uh, That's great, but now will you recognize the type of problem when it's out of order? So the idea is uh, that math practice, doing the same thing over and over, although it's a good way for initial learning, that learning will melt away and be forgotten. So you need to mix things up. You need to practice retrieval. You need to space out your practice. Those are all good strategies uh, for learning. Excellent. Excellent, excellent. Dr. Roddy, you gave us some great information. I know that uh, many of my listeners will be able to apply it, and I do get a good number of listeners um, who are educators, and I hope that they will start applying some of your your research. Uh, we have been speaking with Dr. Henry L. Rodiger III, the James S. McDonald Distinguished University Pre- Professor at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Professor Roddy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Good talking to you. Same here. That's all the time we have for today. Stay tuned next time as we continue to tackle the truth behind schoolhouse doors.